What is the worst house rule you've experienced? In anything? Yeah, I would say video games, board games, life in general. Huh. That's tough. Because I feel like, for me, I've experienced a lot of house rules. Like, a lot lot of times you'll come in and play for me for example i i came in and started playing monopoly with a group of, with a group of friends and they had been playing monopoly for such a long time that they had house ruled it to the point that it was indistinguishable like it was unrecognizable compared to the original monopoly what did they do to it oh my gosh there were there's so many house rules i can't even note them like Every little thing about passing go and about each, you know, the dice and the, the every single thing was altered in just a minor way that it's like once they explain it to you, you're like, oh, that's, yeah, that's, that makes sense. But like, it, it's just a bombardment of house rules to the point where it's like, oh my gosh, it takes an initiation for you to be able to play Monopoly with these folks. <laughs> And so that's how I learned to play Monopoly. And so I literally cannot play Monopoly with people now because I am so inundated with those very strange, specific house rules that have been created over like a decade. So I I can't even play Monopoly out of the box anymore because just those house rules just bombarded me with all these different ways to play Monopoly. I don't think mm. my life has been much worse because of it, but... Yeah. <laughs> it's so you're saying at this point the way you play Monopoly is their way. Yeah. Yeah, it's not out of the box anymore. Yeah. It's like those parents who raise their kid with the wrong words for things. So he oh. says the sky is purple and that like a dog is called a cat and then they go out to the real world and they're what discovering sort of parent does this? <laughs> scientists. Scientists. <laughs> oh no. Oh. I have a um So, for mine, someone that I used to play, who may or may not be related to me in some way, uh, well, there's two that he he enforced. One of them was that there was absolutely no smack talk during a game. Uh, Game of what? uh, Any video game we played. No smack? No, you can't even say, like, gotcha. For real. Like, I would would kill him. Uh, So, we played Sega Dreamcast together a lot. And there was a game called San Francisco Rush 2049. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> that was in my dentist office. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, we just play a two-player. You play as a car with gun upgrades, and you just shoot each other. It was really low-level fun. <laughs> anyway, so if I was to blow him up and say, wow, that was a that was a long shot, he would be mad at me for months. <laughs> and, and I'm like, geez. So we, basically, the, the game was silent. But that's not even the one I want to talk about. The one that really sticks in my craw is that we would play Smash Brothers, um, I think it was on the Wii. Smash Brothers, is it Brawl? Brawl. It was the first one that introduced the Smash Ball. It's like that power-up that lets you do your your ultimate move. Uh, And he, my friend, house-ruled this uh, without changing any of the rules in the game. You can actually turn off Smash Balls in the game. Uh, He didn't do that. He said you were not allowed to get more than one Smash Ball in a row. So you could alternate and get every other, but you couldn't get two in a row. <laughs> what? So, what? wait, so what happens if you do? What uh, is there a punishment? <laughs> the, the punishment is losing him as your friend. Oh, my gosh. 
It's um, me or the smash ball. Pick one. And like, I'm not kidding. I think that was probably when our relationship started to go away. Oh, because I always grabbed two in a row. Oh, I just, I'm here to win. <laughs> it's probably just because he didn't know how to like pick it up himself. So he's like, "Come on, guys, let me have a chance." He wasn't really good at the game, uh. so he controlled the the situation in the only way he could, which is via social uh, passive aggression. So I don't know if this counts as a, a house roll or just bad DMing. I played in a in a campaign with um, some friends once, and the GM, whenever we'd like get off the rails or do something we weren't supposed to, he would rewind the game back to before what? that event happened. Wait, would he just like look at you guys and be like? <laughs> <laughs> no, he would just say, uh, we're going to rewind. I don't even remember what he said. I'm pretty sure he might have just said rewind. Yeah, it's rewind time. And it would just like <laughs> take us back to like <laughs> where we started. So I'm, so at one point in the game, I'm like, like narrative wise, like I bet this guy's going to be the bad guy. So I'm like, I'm just going to stab him and see what happens. And immediately he goes, Rewind. Oh my god! And then it turned out that guy was the bad guy, and he just didn't want me to kill him before he had revealed himself. That's oh weird. Like, my god, it's almost like quick saving in a video game, but you're not in control of the quick saving. Yeah, it's the it's... game that is in control. Um, so... it's like a bad '80s superhero. Like, all right, rewind. Just oh. no, not a superhero, a sitcom. That sounds terrible. It was. Uh... <laughs> It was, it was, but it wasn't like a bad experience. It was just like, like I, I didn't take it seriously because it wasn't like a good game. So mm. I was just like doing it more it ironically. Yes. So what you're saying is that he put you in a situation where you could comfortably troll and you had no choice but to troll. Yes. Oh, so that that's the best made, GM. That <laughs> man made David who he is today. <laughs> No! <laughs> Curse him! Welcome to Box Arcana. I'm William. I'm Jake. I'm David. And this is a podcast about tabletop RPGs, game design, and advice for all game masters. This is episode 35, House Rules. House Rules? Whenever we're starting these shows, usually we like to begin with the definition of a house rule. So let's define it now so we can talk about it. So uh, I would just say that a house rule is anything that is implemented and agreed upon by the party that is playing the game that is not stated in the rules as written mm -hmm. of the game that you're playing. So, so any deviation from the rules as written. Is, any deviation is that is mutually agreed upon because mm -hmm. it has to be. Uh, agreed upon by the people that you're playing with like hey we're gonna do this mm -hmm. so uh here's a a challenge to that definition um so if you're looking at let's say monopoly the rules for monopoly fit on the the insert board inside yes. the box it's you know uh, probably two pages right and dnd is obviously hundreds mm -hmm. actually maybe thousands like a thousand pages yeah. or so of of rules um, but there's lots of little things that I do that I wouldn't consider house rules that are not, they're not doing something that the rules don't say to do. And they're not doing anything that the rules say not to do. Like, for instance, um, rolling on your character background 
versus just choosing one. Mm-hmm. So is that a house rule? No, because this list is as an option in character creation. Mm. Okay. So I would say a house rule is for what we're talking about today could be um, some of the rules options that we have or any custom rules outside that are listed of 5e. So mm. rolling for stats because 5e lists several option optional rules that you can or cannot include into your games that they, they're just like, this would be a fun way to play uh, if you choose. Well, it's interesting that D&D 5e is essentially inviting people to tweak it. Like the, the Dungeon Master's Guide is essentially just a book full of variations of rules or, or more systems you can put in or things you can take out. They have sub rules for like a no skills version of D&D. And they have spell points instead of spell slots, D&D. Yeah. Like all kinds of things. Um, and we wouldn't call those house rules. We would just call those rules variants. Yes. Okay. Jake, what do you think? Well, what, what's the difference, though? Hmm. Like be, like if if the game designers lay it out, it's like, hey, you could potentially play it this way. Like is that a game variant as opposed to a house rule? I mean, personally, I would say it's all house rules because it's something you would have to explain to, to a new person sitting down at your table. Okay, here's what we do. Here's how we handle it. Even though it's officially mentioned in the core books, uh, even like um, Milestone XP or um, whatever, you pick pick your favorite. Um, just because you have to tell them because it does deviate from the way they would run it in something like Adventurers League. Mm-hmm. I think that the so if we're talking about official like rules as written. D&D, the, mo- the closest you're going to get to that is probably Adventurers League. Mm-hmm. And everything else from that is just a deviation of what D&D is. And we also don't have a consistent set of rules in 5e because D&D isn't a competitive game. So when you have a competitive game like Monopoly where there's winners and losers mm-hmm. or any other sport, like the rules are going to be set in stone and they're going to be played across everything. Like chess is the same game. Mm-hmm. Like you go to chess and you play in France, it's going to be the same in China or the United States because mm-hmm. it's a competitive game and everybody is trying to, like they agree upon these same like rules in order to try and win. Whereas D&D is not that. You're not trying to win. So wow. there isn't a less, there's, there isn't a set of defined rules or objective for winning. So... Let me take that to its logical extreme, and I'll give you a hot take and say that every rule in Dungeons and Dragons, or for any role-playing game, is a house rule. Because even reading the rule book or the Dungeon Master saying it out loud and no one complaining about it implies a certain creation at the table. And, you know, we've said this countless times where it's, D&D isn't a game, it's a toolbox for creating your own game. And so whenever any rule is said and no one says, "Hey, wait a second, that's stupid. Let's let's make it this way." Whenever a rule is said and there's no confrontation or no disagreement about it, that rule is created essentially out of the ether. And so every single game that you play with your friends around a table is its own thing, its own toolbox, its own unique variant of this strange sphere of influence that is Dungeons and Dragons or any role-playing game. And so, yeah, I I don't even think there is like, I don't know, even looking at like the subreddit for D&D or the subreddit for 
for various types of role-playing stuff. It used to be, I'd say like 10 years ago, people would see stuff and be like, that's not how the rules are. Or no, that's, that, that doesn't make any sense. No, that's not, you know. And they would just like critique the rules as written. Nowadays, I'm seeing a lot more answers that say, hey, ask your dungeon master. If they say it's okay, it's okay. And a lot more openness to like, hey, this could, if this works at your table, it works at your table. And it's like, it's this strange thing of, of seeing every single person's table being so different to everyone else's because everyone's working with a different toolbox that, I don't know, I, I, I love that. I think I, I would agree somewhat, but I also, I think that um, it works more of like a school of thought. So you have different people who have different interpretations of what D&D is in the community. So you have the Wizards of the Coast team at 5e with uh, 5th edition. So And they, they show like, hey, this is what we think D&D is. Um, this is our school of thought on the matter. And then you have other bigger figures um, like, you know, Mike Merles or um, you have uh, the cast of Critical Role and how they play. And you have these different schools of thought. And then it kind of trickles down and everybody kind of like, they're like, well, I like this from this school and I like this from this school. And mm-hmm. it kind of trickles down. But overall, there are you know big trends that we can follow and we can see like these types of people focus more on story oriented games and these people focus on more game types of games and that's and you can kind of follow these trends of how people play and the rules that they follow mm-hmm. uh, so jake i have to really disagree with you saying that all rules in 5e are house rules um because like obviously we have to have some commonality some document to refer back to so i would say like yes dnd is a toolbox but the the rule books are this uh this foundation this common place for everyone to start um but it is this fertile soil that then the games grow out of and you're right that no two groups are really going to be the same because of tastes or just personalities or how the gm interpreted a rule um and then one other point i want to make is what like what david was saying about sports rules um, or any any competitive game, um, if you can, if that's true, then that means that the more competitive a game is, the more tightly the rules need to be interpreted and, and maintained. And then the more freeform and loose, and like the less it matters, um, the more free the rules are. So it's almost like five E rules are only here to loosely tie together this this like ball of string or whatever it is, this crazy hobby that we love. Um, so that we can actually all talk about it and understand each other. Otherwise, yeah. it would be the freaking Wild West. Yeah, I so so I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I just feel like there's a distinction, I think, between like Dungeons and Dragons um, and like board games. Because like mm-hmm. if, if you're playing Dungeons and Dragons, like you can kind of set stuff out and be like, okay, hey, guys, this is D&D. So this is this and this is this. And if the whole group's like, wait we don't want that then you can very easily go okay yeah we'll just change that whereas if you open up a box and pull out a board game and start handing everyone pieces and putting out the game map and okay we're going to start playing a board game and there's less of a there's less of an ability for players to be like nah we don't like that rule let's change it Mm -hmm. i feel like DD has this openness where you can change rules much more openly than you could, you know, say settlers of Catan, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so, so what do you call that? That like that that uh, malleability, that adaptiveness. 
I feel like it, it's much more adaptive than any other type of game. Well, well, I think it's because the rules are written in a way that requires interpretation. And with mm. differences in interpretation comes different uh, rules outcomes. So uh, the way that a hardcore gamer is going to play D&D and the way they read the rules is going to be different than a hardcore role player like you is going to play the game and interpret the rules and make changes because you're both wanting different outcomes and you're both coming in with the mindset of a different game and you're trying to fit the rules to fit that framework in your head. Mm-hmm. So as you as people go and they have a, a notion of what D&D is, they're going to try to fit the rules to fit that notion. I think that um, if we're comparing board games to role-playing games, there are some people who really don't like RPGs. Um, I remember the very first time I played D&D was for my family, including my dad, who was just like, okay, I'll uh, see what this is about. <laughs> and my dad, my dad hated the game. Uh, and to be fair, it was completely free form and it wasn't really D&D at all. It was just like a scenario in a D20. Um, but he actually just got up and left. He's like, this is silly. Uh, I'm going to leave. And <laughs> right. But then you think of a board game that has like these very strict, like here's the procedures you do every yeah. turn. Here's exactly yeah. what you can do. And the limited choices actually are more helpful for a lot of people who don't have, or they're not interested in creative problem solving. They're interested in succeeding within a system, which I've seen David be extremely good at, like recognizing the patterns and seeing yeah. uh, how to overcome something. I think that's why our favorite board game is cosmic encounter because it has a strong repetitive system but it also has a strong social component. Um, and so it's it kind of blurs the line between that RPG and the board game, leaning probably more toward uh, board game. Yeah, yeah. I'm learning a lot from this conversation. Very interesting. Shall we move on? Yeah. Right, I want to talk about how to design house rules for uh, your game, because if you're a dungeon master, and this is a contentious thesis argument I'm going to make right now, if you're a dungeon master, this means you are more or less going to be a game designer. And this is going to vary depending on the person, um, but just the mere act of picking magic items out of the book um, to fit your group or how to challenge them, like you're having to think about game design problems. Um, So I guess the first question I have for David is that why would people make house rules? If 5e is so good, why are we changing it all the time? Ooh, okay. So I think that you so you have that's a that's a loaded statement because you say 5e is so good but 5e is like it's it's a base it's like a sandwich where it has all of the essential components but it might not have all the flavors you want or desire Mm -hmm. so let's say you like things to be more spicy you might want to add some hot sauce (laughs) but in D&D let's say you want to make things more uh you want to make things more uh, crunchy in terms of injuries. <laughs> you might add a system that adds injuries into the game, or you want to make weight feel more, make Spicy. items feel. You let's say you want to like have better inventory tracking. You want to make make it so every item is a choice that you have in your inventory. You're going to add different weight tracking systems. Okay. In order let, to let me stop you there. But why do we do this? Why do we do it? Why would we change a rule? Because I, I, I would say that Dungeons and Dragons, I've said it time and time again, it, it's not a game. It's just a, a toolbox of things you can do to make a game with your friends around a table. Mm-hmm. And so you take what you want, you leave what you don't want, and you get to role play with your friends. 
Um, and you can take as much as you want. You can leave as much as you want. And I think 5th edition and Wizards of the Coast for 5th edition were just like, okay, we get this. And some people want this type of game and some people want this type of game. And so we can't design a perfect game for everyone. So we need to design a very good game for the most amount of people and then write into the rule books, take what you want and leave the rest to make sure that that everyone has something. And I think they did a great job of cornering the market in such a way, not even cornering the market, of casting the widest net possible so that they could get an amount of people that are like, yeah, you know, 5e works for me. Because that's their goal is to get the widest net possible. It's not to corner the market on people who just want to be crunchy with their numbers or corner the market on dramatic thespians. Like they <laughs> want to just cast the widest net they can. And I think they did really well with that by saying at the beginning of the player's handbook and the Dungeon Master's Guide, this game is improvised and created by you and your friends at the table. So go nuts. Take what you need. Leave what you don't. Leave what you I, don't want. I think that when you change the rules of the game, you change the decisions that you have to make, Is which is really why people make house rules. Because you want to... Because the decisions that you have to make change how you feel about the game. If you're constantly having to decide, to decide like what items that you can carry and what items that you can't, that's going to feel different than decisions that you're going to have to make in a social encounter or um, how you're going to attack if you're missing your right hand or <laughs> things like that. Like the, the decision, it rules fundamentally alter the way that you play the game in terms of what choices you have and what options you have. Very well said. So uh, to put this differently, and, and I hate that I did this where I like, ask a question and I, I just answer it myself. Yes. Um, sorry. <laughs> sorry, guys. Um, uh, I think that David summarized it pretty well. Like we're trying to make the game feel a certain way yeah. by emphasizing certain things. And so just by, like, to me, the rules are as much a part of the way I design a D&D adventure as the world building, as yes. the NPC design, as the combat design. Because if mm -hmm. I'm making you track weight, um, for this example, um, it makes you think about um, like what you pick up and put down, yes. and like what you really value. Um, if I'm making you like track your food and water intake, which I haven't really done, I don't know if I would for a survival type game. Um, that's going to feel different than this high fantasy like you know Game of Thrones type of game. So mm -hmm. systems influence the feel of the game. Yeah, you. it's like when you go to a restaurant, like you wouldn't go to Jack in the Box and they just have a list of ingredients. They're going to have, you know, the number one, the number two. They're going to, you know, the Big Mac. Big Mac at Jack in the Box? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, but at the same time, rules also uh, limit the decisions that you make because you can't you can't really go to McDonald's and just order 32 hamburger patties. Like that's that's just. Oh, sure you can. Why can't you, you, David? You can, but it's not going to be optimal and it's not going to be as good as, you know, going somewhere else and ordering it. Hmm. So my final, uh, I feel like I'm teaching a class here. No, you sad. should. Um, <laughs> I should teach a class? Okay. Yes. Um, so uh, thinking about this, I realized that there's really only three ways to change rules and that is to either add, remove, or change them. Right? That's, that's really all you could do is add, remove, or change. And so... Um, 
like my observations based on Jake's game, it seems like he has removed or changed a lot. I don't know, Jake, can you think of any rule that you have added that is actually um, totally new? Not off the top of my head, no. But I, because I, mm. I feel like my the nature of my game is so dependent on my table and my sensibilities and the specifics of my group that no, most of it is altering rules or removing rules. There's not a lot of like creation out of the ether because Five E has done such a good job of making a really good crunchy base game that my game mostly involves cutting or trimming the fat we don't want which is funny because i feel like for my personal um history of 5e game design i'm either changing or adding i'm almost never huh. removing rules huh mm. interesting all right so um i'm going to talk about how to design good house rules and some some best practices but before i do that i thought it would be interesting to uh, look at how to design bad house rules because we can we can learn a lot by looking at the wrong way to do something. Yes, here we go. <laughs> it's it's going to be a little tongue in cheek, but uh, just bear with me, and you will learn. Um, I'm feeling very academic today, guys. I'm not really sure why. Um, probably very scholarly. Probably because yeah, I am training to be a wizard. So, <laughs> aren't we all? Mm. Uh, I'm going to live at the coast, and you're going to call me the wizard on the beach. All right, let's go. Uh. <laughs> All right, how to design bad house rules. First, I would say don't try to understand the rules as written. In fact, read them as little as possible before passing judgment. <laughs> I see nice. this all over the internet where people glance at a rule set and they're like, oh, well, this isn't like XYZ game that I love. <laughs> I hate it. I'm changing it. And, and they don't have a complete picture. I'm guilty of this because it's <laughs> it's tough because it's like, do you want to... I don't know. I view my gaming time... Even though I I play D&D a lot, right? Even though I play D&D a lot, every time we play, I feel like that time is sacred. And there's so much story and wonderful role-playing and combat and interesting scenarios to fit in there. That if I treated it as like a testing ground for rules, I feel like it would be cheap to my players. So I often do make quick judgments like, nah, no, 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 I'm not trying that out. (laughs) We're just going to, we're just going to go, you know, by the seat of my pants and be like, nah, nah, we'll change that, make it quicker, remove this, ignore that. Yeah. And I'm very guilty of this. I mean, honestly, I'm guilty of this too, where um, even just in this last year of doing the podcast and reading all the class features and really diving into the the core, core rule books and Xanathar's. And I'm seeing things where I'm like, oh my gosh, this changes how I think about other parts of the game. Uh, this big, yeah. this complicated, I describe it as like a car engine. Like there's all these moving parts and um, it's easy to look at a spell and make a conclusion about how it, how you think it would work in the game. Mm-hmm. Not realizing that there's like these 10 other factors that are not included there. They're elsewhere in the book. Um, just in our last D&D session, somebody was uh, in the Tomb of Annihilation and they had picked up another magic item and, and he said, oh, I'm going to equip this. And David, thank God, pointed out you can only attune to three items at a time, which is a rule I had forgotten about. Like, I, you know, I was aware of it, but in the moment I had just, I was too busy to remember. What? That's rules as written? Yeah. Yeah. Three. Well, let me write down another house rule that <laughs> I have. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, any yeah. thoughts you can use more than three magic items but you can't be attuned to more than three magic mm-hmm. items unless there are other 
things that give you more attunement options. Yeah. What in the world? Wow. This is for balance, Jake. Otherwise, you're going to have players who are just getting Having gods. too much fun. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Having too much fun. <laughs> um, I mean, if you were playing 5e, you would realize that uh, <laughs> balance uh, is a factor. Okay, let's move on. All right. More bad advice for how to build house rules is to start modifying the game before you ever play it. And for bonus points, I would suggest you start modifying it before you even finish reading the rules. Oh, here we go. God. <laughs> this is sort of the more extreme version of uh, the first point. Um, it's just, and I, I think I've been somewhat guilty of this, but um, yeah. I so so I don't feel like I'm guilty as this much as I am the first one. Like mm. I will read rules and kind of play them out and change them quickly. But I feel like I'm I want to play it at least once. Or just like do a hypothetical scenario. Um, I feel like it was really good, you know, back when, you know, 2013, 2014, whenever the game came out. Like we had that whole summer where we played, guys, we played D&D like every night for like oh, the dream. two and a half months. Like just <laughs> nonstop. And, and so we, it was really cool every to just kind of like figure out what 5th edition was. Because we were really just digging into fifth edition, um, and then I went back to college, and with with my group, I suggested starting a group, and and my roommates started playing with me, and that's when I started making house rules. So mm-hmm. I think I'm not guilty of just like shooting in the dark and be like, yeah, no, I hate that. I don't like. Let's change that. You know, I've at least played fifth edition rules as written quite a bit before I started gunslinging and <laughs> making a lot of maverick decisions. <laughs> And that's really good. Um, th- so I've had to push back against my own, um, really, frankly, my prejudices and the way I view these games, reading through Blades in the Dark, where uh, it is yeah. fundamentally different than 5e. Like, there's almost nothing that you can bring from your 5e DM toolbox into Blades in the Dark without some serious tweaks. Oh, and so wild. that was something that I had to like read all the way through and then read again uh, before I could even sit down and play. Because um, otherwise... Um, it's going to be wrong. And the same goes for any other RPG that you want to play. Hmm. Um, okay. Uh, next point is make sure that you create lots of new systems and subsystems with entirely new mechanisms that don't relate to the original <laughs> game at all. <laughs> oh uh, so, uh, so I've written down some just cr- the craziest house rules I could think of. Uh, and probably someone will listen to the show and be like, actually, that's a pretty good idea. So um, if your name is Josh uh, and you're going to change this, write in and... <laughs> Josh, please don't. It's Josh again. Oh, do we already use Josh? Yes, we used I meant it twice. Caitlin Mueller from Minnesota. <laughs> you you again use Minnesota. Dang it, guys. Last I just listened to Josh it. Josh Johnson from Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> I I just listened to that episode again. All right. Um so here's some some systems that are sort of like uh not not the same as 5e. Like, I modified 5e to exclusively use a d100 instead of a d20, right? That's different, and that's Oof. something to learn. Um, or I made a new combat system that uses 3d6 plus half of your ability score. It's much more balanced. Oh. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, exactly. Uh. Or I removed skills from the game and, re- and replaced them with a career system I took from Final Fantasy thirteen. Oh, no. <laughs> or uh, I added Skyrim-like skill trees for every skill. Now, as you oh. use them, they'll level up, and then there's skill trees, and there's like 16 skill trees I had to create. Ooh. Yeah. See, okay, I will defend the last one because I feel like if you have a DM that is like into this stuff, 
and like everyone else is really into it i i guess like if the buy-in is that high you can really start to play test and essentially create your own system and but but it requires an amount of buy-in that is like astronomically rare but, yeah, but if you have yeah. a dm and a bunch of players that are willing to almost like gary gygax and and dave arneson in their basement with dozens of people every night for years then like yeah go go nuts but if you guys are just playing and most of you are just there to have a good time once a week or even once a month then this is the most outrageous egregious thing that will not help your sessions at all um so this takes me back to the world building episode where it's very easy to spend your time building this huge cosmological origin story that doesn't really have any bearing on this on the game at all. And to, I've, I've been guilty of this too, where I've built house rules that's, that were very interesting for me. It's that, that level of lonely fun that you don't often get yeah, as a DM. Yeah. Um, but then the time comes to play and you're like, oh, actually I didn't prep an adventure enough. It's only like 20 minutes long, but I have this great rune crafting system where you can enchant your <laughs> items yeah. uh oh no which is a true story by the way <laughs> um okay the next point is make sure that the rules only exist inside your own mind never write them down and if you do write them down make them incomprehensible and very long and wordy and um contradictory if you can Ooh, oh boss. I was bad about this for a long time because I am, I mean, I, honestly, I think I'm bad about this in my entire life. <laughs> I am <laughs> such a fly by the seat of my pants, very good at improv, um, just be like, well, what works, works, and forget the rest, and I do all this, all these notes kind of mentally. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been a practice for me to like, you know, write down NPCs' names after they interact with with the characters or like, you know, write down major plot points, write down major storefronts, write down anything ever in my life. (laughs) So, um, this has been something definitely that I've been trying to, um, canonize, I guess is the word of like seeing, okay, which of my house rules work, which of them don't, which of them are kind of like absolutely canon that work with my world, which of them are like, kind of on the fringe that need a little more playtesting and advice from my players and which of them are like kind of these obscure things that I might want to try out someday. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I, I've gotten better about, you know, kind of determining what those are. Um, but, but that has been definitely a learning curve for me because that is just the antithesis of who I am. Cause I'm just, <laughs> whatever works, works improv. Come on, Drew Carey, give me a, a scene from a hat, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> Actually, Dave Arneson himself was also very bad about writing things down, which is why it's really sad because um, the notes that we do have from his original game are mostly gone. They weren't preserved. And the stuff that we do have is a disorganized mess, like just unsorted uh, stream of thought or stream of consciousness type of notes. um, So this is I, I basically just get really excited for very succinct, compact rules that can fit in just a paragraph or two. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's a that's a discipline for my life in general, just succinct writing. Yeah. And I, I honestly, to be real, Will, I think you're really good at that. Like about, um, you know, kind of notarizing things and just, you know, having stuff uh, written down, documented, and like um, even just a documentation of your life, 
you know, for me, mm. I can look back at my last year and be like, what the hell? I don't remember any of that. <laughs> but you could be like, okay, I went here, here, and here, and here are the pictures for it, and here are my uh, journal entries for there, and here are where, what I was doing at the time. And I'm like, whoa! Like, that is really <laughs> healthy and good to have. No. Uh, for those who don't know, I have kept a journal since I was six years old. And it's very weird to go back and see the person who I was. And also, I, so we are publishing uh, his first five years oh of journaling uh, on Can Vox you Arcana. imagine? <laughs> uh, I can't imagine because it will happening. be read by me and Jake Barton. Out loud. Oh, my God. <laughs> Patrons, that'll be a $100 a month patron tier where me and David read <laughs> Will's old journal. <laughs> Um, so to be fair, it's a lot of, um, Johnny Thunder Lego fan fiction mixed in there. I'm not kidding. Oh my God. You know, make that 200. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's so bad. I mean, can you imagine like how a six year old constructs a story? I can't imagine Will, but we'll find out. We'll find out next week. (laughs) Oh, right. All right. Oh. My next point about bad house rules is spend a majority of your time thinking about your rules and get extremely invested in them. Don't Oof. let go of them. Oh, th- this is a this is a lot of Reddit and forums. You can see people who are just like, I am going to fix fifth edition or oh I am gosh. going to make the perfect version of D&D. And it, you know, a, a lot of that stuff can be really creative and fun and interesting but you can see the amount of time spent and it's like, oh, no, that's just you, you would have had more fun just playing this game more <laughs> or just. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I might talk about this a little bit later, but um, on Reddit a while ago, some guy released his complete hack of uh, Star Wars D&D. 5e specifically Mm -hmm. and he had it laid out like in a pdf and it was beautiful and perfect and there was art um but at the end of the day i was left thinking why did you try to make D&D do this when you could have just run any of the existing star wars games because like the force is not really like a spell not really no um and and same thing like lightsabers should not be something that's on the equipment list anyway i could rant but the the bottom line is that this person was obviously very invested and they never even stopped to ask should i be doing this they just did it so so this logically does get into um what's called i think it's called solo fun or Mm -hmm. like um personal fun because i mean a lot of times you know when, when you get a new rule book or when you get a new monster manual there is a degree of fun for the dungeon master just diving into that stuff and just enjoying um the 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 nuance and all the the cool possibilities you can include in your future sessions but with house rules there is kind of a line because if you keep kind of like exploring in your head the hypotheticals of house rules and the perfect system that just hasn't been made yet and you're going to be the one to make it and if you keep exploring that like i feel like if you push that onto your sessions, you will probably have a worse time because <laughs> it, it's like that solo fun turns into group unfun. It's yeah. like that. Um, so in Treasure Island, they meet this guy uh, named Ben Gunn, who's like this insane man who's been marooned on an island for a long time. Um, and the, I don't know why this came to mind, but oh, that's Ben from Treasure Planet, right? Uh, yeah, that was his version <laughs> the in robot, that yeah. uh, that wonderful, terrible film. Uh, and pick one. 
bro. Uh, well, it's wonderful up until Ben the robot shows up. Oh, this is fantastic! A carbon-based life form come to rescue me at last! I just want to hug you and squeeze you and hold you close to me. And you know I'm right. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. Um, anyway, it's so the lonely fun of a GM, like imagine that there's a couple weeks between the session and that GM spent the entire time like fantasizing about their new rules and how it's going to change the world. And then you sit down with them and they haven't thought about the campaign. They just thought about their their rules and, and the players don't really get to interact with them or if they do, it's very confusing. And so it's like talking to a crazy person who's just like so excited for this one thing. And you're like, but what about just I want to play 5e. I don't. I don't need a rune crafting enchantment system. The games, have you heard of the spells? The spells work great. Okay, anyway. Yeah. Because um, I've, and I, I'm guilty of all these, so don't think that I'm just uh, passing judgment unjustly. Uh, next point is insert your new rules into an ongoing campaign and don't tell your group until the night of. Oh, here we go. <laughs> that's, that's bad. We'll talk about this a little later, but uh, whenever I have house rules, I really try not to. Um, I try to put them in at the start of a new campaign and I say, okay, here's exactly what, like, here's the rules I'm playing with in this one and we're going to try them out. And if they're really terrible, we'll just take them out, but I'm not going to drop them in the middle of a, a campaign. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I think that's a good idea. I think the tough thing for me is my campaigns last years. Mm -hmm. So if I get an idea for something, I'm going to have to drop it in. Like I'm not going to wait, you know, <laughs> 16 no. months to address <laughs> something um so but but yeah i think communication between your players um is very important I, I think it's very bad to you know be like here's a new house rule and then your your player goes i just got this feat and that house rule completely negates that mm -hmm. and you're like, sorry uh that's the new rules you know <laughs> you want to really um let them plan um, and especially if they dissent, you know, if a lot of players are like, this is not fair, I don't like this, this could be better, listen to them, right? Because, like, there's no way you being a tyrant helps the game unless you have a bunch of weird boot-licking players who just want a tyrant, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I haven't found that group yet. <laughs> yet. Will is always I'll searching, him. but not yet. No, no, no. But it's a good point. Like, I don't... It's even getting to where, like, before I even get excited for a rule, I just pitch it to my yeah. current group. And then, like, if the feedback's negative, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to waste time developing this further. Because, yep. like, obviously they were yep. really upset. So, And it might and hurt. It, it might hurt. But it's it's important to get that, like, no, nah, that's kind of stupid, buddy. Rather yeah. than, like, you pouring right, I've invested 40 into hours <laughs> into this, this thing and I have a 20-page Google Doc. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good to just communicate with your players. And I think that's why I'm really blessed to have several different groups of players to where I can pitch it to different types of groups and I can see their different styles and see how each, you know, archetypical group responds to the rule. Um, because mm -hmm. it, it is different when you're pitching a, a rule to a group that's very specific and very reliant on its own context um mm -hmm. it helps you know i'm jealous of of wizards of the coast being able to poll you know thousands of people over you know thousands of different tables oh yeah and i think that's why we have the addition that we do is because they're able to ask the right questions yep. and get really get the feedback like, yes. we've never had an addition that's so uh well crowdsourced uh, yes it's really have you guys seen the new stats they just released new stats yeah, no. it, it was um, ratings for all the classes. Um, it was like feedback um, from a poll about every single class and subclass. And so each class and subclass has a grade. 
Um, and it's super cool to see the um, the grades uh, that that each class or subclass was given. Mm. Oh, it's fantastic! Like me and my players had like a, you know an hour long discussion about it, and we basically surmised that um, groups don't like social subclasses. Oh, really? They prefer. What they what people want, and this is a little off topic. I'll, I'll be done soon. But what people want is high damage output and a yes. ton of options in combat. Yeah, that's what they mm. want. Okay. And all the subclasses that are very role play dependent and very specific to a type of role play and very good in social encounters are disliked. Hmm. People want. I can see that high. Just damage output and a ton of options. All of the wizard subclasses were above a B plus. Oh my gosh! Every we're above one. a what? B a B plus. plus. Like so they were just positive. they were yeah exactly because they just have so many options. Um, but like classes like the shepherd, uh, druid, which is like very low. Like the uh, the inquisitor, you know, uh, or the inquisitive bard, very low because it's just like it's a very specific role play thing yeah um but yeah very interesting sorry off topic let's let's go that's good um i probably could talk about that but i think we're going to talk about that more later yes uh all right um next point is when people ask why you've changed certain rules make sure not to explain your reasoning just say the rules suck so i changed them oh (laughs) like um i've learned this from um like so if you, you know who jeff kaplan is he works at blizzard yeah. So he was the one of the main designers on World of Warcraft, or at least he was the guy on that team. And um, I went to BlizzCon and I watched a lot of panels. And so you get to understand how game designers talk about player feedback. Yeah. And he has said many times, because now he works for the Overwatch team, um, saying something is broken is not at all helpful for nope. understanding how to fix something. Nope. And so um, I've, I've met people, usually younger uh, DMs, who just say, oh, this sucks. Like this, whatever it is, this part of the game sucks. And I'm like, well, why? Can you tell me exactly why you feel that way? And they say, no, it sucks. And it's so not helpful nope. for understanding anything. And the same goes for I mean, movie reviews for people who say it either sucks or it doesn't. I'm like, well, if you can't articulate why uh, you feel that way, like then I just, I can't have a very long conversation with you because like I want to get into it and really like understand. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I found this with, with my games is like I... I want to have, for every single house rule, I want to have a, a very well-articulated paragraph of why the rule has changed. Yeah. Uh, because if I don't, I failed a lot of house rules that I've just been like, oh, I thought that's how the game worked. Mm-hmm. And then like yeah. a year and a half later, someone's like, no, 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 it works like this. I go, oh, well, oh, well. Right. Dang, that, it that's seems way more better. fun to me. <laughs> it's like, that's... But like, like I've been confronted with some of that. I'd be like, oh, yeah, no, that that's that's way better. I just... Yeah, I think you should be able to articulate and communicate why rules are changed um, and honestly be willing to take feedback that might be disruptive. You need yeah. to potentially argue uh, with your uh, rules lawyer at the table and say, no, this is better for the table because of this and this. Yeah. Um, and even if you're a DM and it gets to this point, say, OK, folks at the table, raise your hand if you want this house rule. Hmm. And if the majority does it, you say, okay, that's the rule now. And if the majority doesn't, if you're the only one with your hand up, even though you're the DM, you go, okay, hmm. the table wants this. And and 
and you react accordingly. Yeah, that's really smart. Uh, and actually, that goes into my final point, which is make sure not to listen to player feedback because they, they're they not as smart as you and they don't understand what you're trying to do. Yeah. <laughs> the players don't matter. Players, but yeah, their opinions don't matter. It's not like that they outnumber you in the game. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. So um, then I can just briefly run down the, the good way, as you would expect, to just do the opposite of everything I've said so far. Um, but point one is know and play the rules as written first. Like, I really can't emphasize that enough. Like, yeah. really know the rules and really try it out. Like, because there's things, um, I mean, I've been, I'm so guilty of this, Jake. I wrote this episode for me. Um, this is what <laughs> I've learned being a bad game designer for the past, like, 10 years. Um, where there's there's parts of the game that kind of jump out and surprise you. You're like, oh, uh, this is the same reason that when I read Cosmic Encounters uh, instruction guide, oh, I yeah. didn't get it. And I returned the game. No, wait, are you serious? That's my favorite I'm, board game of all time. Yeah, it's mine too, but that's what I did. You, I, it didn't click for me. And I was like, what? oh, this isn't fun. This is this is a joke. And I returned it. Oh, you're lying. Are you serious? Wow. that it's that is the best so, game. It really is. Like, I have, I, I have introduced dozens, maybe hundreds of people to that game. Mm-hmm. Like it is incredible. That is so funny. That fits so perfect for that role, though. Oh, oh man. Oh, yeah. Man. And so um, this is kind of like your example, Jake, of monopoly of people just changing the rules, and then you come in as a newcomer to any game, and you're like, oh well, I've never played the default game, so mm-hmm. all my assumptions are wrong. Yeah. And so it kind of messes you up because now when you think of Monopoly, you're thinking of like oh, rolling two d twenty to move around the board, <laughs> or shooting another player to go to jail. <laughs> 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 yeah, but a lot David, how'd you know that my, my our house rules of Monopoly involved it was like a real first person shooter. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta make the game fun however you can. Yeah. It was so. basically Monopoly Fortnite edition and it was Oh my oh. airdrop into the properties. <laughs> Where are we dropping boys? <laughs> it would be fun to use a Monopoly board as a and d overworld map in a city. And so oh, you're traveling what the f- to like all it's the a different- Grand Theft Auto map almost. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're defending boardwalk, boys. <laughs> that's that's so funny. And then you have like the jail that you're trying to loot for supplies. Oh, oh my god, this is great. What a wild world. Yeah, well, you can do anything with the D and D. Okay. In in summation of um of this point of know the know and play the rules as written first. Just don't tinker with it until you try it, guys. Come on, just don't tinker until you try it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, and then here's some important questions to ask yourself when you're designing rules. What is your goal of the design? And I wish that was a clever acronym for something, but really, I would ask yourself, what are you trying to achieve? So for like some, some rules that I have created was weight tracking. I just wanted, it was for a hex crawl game where survival is kind of more of a factor, but I didn't want to track food and water, so tracking weight mattered. And that was just to make sure that players didn't hoard all of the swords that they get and then go sell them at a vendor, like like you do in Skyrim. And that was just a personal pet peeve of mine. Yeah. And and plus, it, I was trying to make it seem more immersive in that way. So that's why I designed that rule. Uh, so that was what are you trying to achieve. Next is what's the best way to fix it? I always go for minimalism. Start small and then make it expand. Starting with um, a huge spreadsheet of like, here's the statistics for every weapon in the game. And I need to make a complete like arsenal with all these different stats. Like That's probably too big and it's going to get overwhelming. And I don't know if it's actually going to improve anything. 
but maybe I would have, like if you're changing weapon speeds or something, or weapon attack damage, um, start by just making players have different maneuvers they can make, you know? Just, just one or two things. See mm -hmm. if people like it. Uh, what's the most efficient way to implement this idea? That's what I said before. Just keep it small. And then, like David said, what do your players think? Make them raise their hand. Play test it. Like, I, if I had asked them, do you guys want to track weight? Probably they would have said no. Um, but then for my most recent rule, um, I asked in my group text, because um, Matt Colville suggested this rule. He says um, he played a game where he didn't let players roll on untrained skills. He said, you, you just don't, you don't know how to do that. Yeah, and I was like, whoa, that's crazy. And then I thought about how would this change the game and what kind of decisions would players make now if they knew that their trained skills are the only skills they have until they level up and pick more. I thought it was interesting, but I pitched it to the group and just it was a resounding no. Like, no way, Jose. And I'm like, okay, well, we're not going to do it then. And that's just, it saved me a lot of game design time and brain space. Uh-huh. Yeah. There, to be fair though, there is a tension, right? And I feel like the best place to do this is with a new campaign, especially in a new environment, because you can be like, okay, now we're going to add in weight tracking, or now we're going to change the way short rests are done, you know, mm -hmm. because you can kind of be like, and yeah, the players are going to go, I want it to be easy or, you know, and so that's the tough thing. It's like you want this process to be democratic, but you also want it to be fun. And so a lot of things, if you implement, are going to be fun. But if your players were to have voted for them a dozen sessions ago, they would have voted completely against it because they thought it would have made the game harder. Mm -hmm. And it would have. And it will. But that's that's what makes the game fun, too. And so ah, there is that, that, that fine line, that tension between democratically determining rules, but also having the Dungeon Master say, guys, I think this will be more fun in the long run, even if it is more difficult. Yeah. And you're always allowed to try it out for a few sessions. And if it really is just terrible and players are mad all the time, take it out. Yeah. Like you, no house rule is a commitment for life. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what I love because... Even though, like I said, when I when I joined that Monopoly game and there were all these house rules, it was kind of beautiful because all the house rules, you know, there were dozens upon dozens of them. But each one, once I saw the logic behind it, it was like this beautiful clockwork machine. And I was like, oh, I get why they did this. Um, and you could see there's probably a graveyard of, you know, destroyed ideas behind every house rule mm -hmm. where they tried out something and it didn't work out. And so every house rule is the product of a very refined system where it ends up working. Hmm. And so I, I like that kind of Darwinism of, of house rules. And if something works, it works. If it doesn't, throw in the trash. It doesn't matter. You don't have to stick with house rules. And it's especially easy for Dungeons and Dragons because you're just, you're not even probably writing this down on paper. No, for me, this no. is a Google Doc or like a yeah. note in my phone. And so um, to compare that to like programming something in a game, like making a mod or even making a board game where you're making components and cutting things out of paper. Um, it's so easy to tinker in D&D &D or really RPG games in general. Yeah, yeah. Commitment level is very low. Yeah. All right. I mentioned this before, change, add, or remove. These are your three options with house rules. Um, 
Jake says he mostly removes and changes. Um, and usually the reason we change is to fix a perceived problem or to enforce a gameplay behavior that we would like to see. That's usually why I change things. Mm -hmm. um, I If I'm removing something, it's because I don't like it or it's because I'm going to remove it and replace it with something yep. else. I can't think of anything I have removed from D&D specifically i know jake has removed resurrection magic oh we'll talk is, about that later yeah yes. and that's that's yes. such, such a huge and like very impactful uh thing to change in the fiction and in the system in yeah. general yeah and then adding is obviously just something that you feel is missing um like i know david is interested in in weapon uh weapon changes yeah i feel like this is where you can get in trouble because i feel like adding something requires new systems that are untested um, and, yeah. and it takes either a lot of play testing or very minor changes for this to work or else it's going to break the game in a bad or good way. I think the adding is going to be the most uh, difficult one yep. to do. Like if you want to add a new class to the game or you want to add a new skill to the game, like or background, right? Like you're just adding something. It's so much easier to change an existing system than to create from whole cloth. Yes. Yeah. Make sure you playtest your rules a lot. Um, I've heard that when John Harper was designing Blades in the Dark, he designed it over two years, playtesting every week and changing things every week for his players until he found exactly the right feel for the game he wanted. So yeah. playtest. And that's hard to do, right? Because I talked about earlier that you feel like every bit of, of gaming time is sacred. Like every session is sacred. And so... It does feel almost deceptive to be like, hey, I was testing a new system on you fools the whole time. But there should be a degree of playtesting with every single session you do, um, as long as it doesn't disrupt game flow or anything I like actually, that. so I disagree with that sentiment because the way you, the way you think of it is, it is... Uh, I'm just uh, I'm just throwing in these random rules to see what's happening. Whereas that's not the situation, and it's actually the DM is just trying to make the game better. It's I'm trying to improve the game, and I'm trying to add something, and maybe this isn't um, this isn't gonna work, and maybe it is. And if it, it if it does work, it's gonna make the game infinitely better. Yeah, how how do you disagree with me? That's exactly what because it said. because you're because from the way it sounds that you're uh, saying it is that the DM isn't doing it from a place of trying to improve the game. They're doing it from a place of like this. I'm just adding this random chaotic element to the game and I'm just trying to see what happens. Oh, oh if it came across that way, I, I'm so sorry. No, I, I, I don't think any DM should ever add a rule to add chaos to a game. <laughs> they should always be adding rules to make the game better. So, so no, I'm sorry if it came across that way. No, like Dungeon Master should always be adding rules to add more order and more fun to a game. Um, and I think that's what playtesting is for. But the risk is if you're playing the game, sometimes people can be like, are we just testing something out? Like there's kind of this like almost uh, invisible curtain of them, you know, looking behind it being like, wait, are you just kind of moving the dials to seeing if something is balanced? And, and that's when and that's clear communication is, is yeah. the key here. Yeah. yeah. 
So, I mean, but I, I think that is still on the GM to like take every session seriously and not just be like, oh, this is just a test session to see, you know, if this rule works or not. It'd be a very specific type of group if they knew that this is like the play test for my game group. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that they do that. I'd for love the, to do that. Well, I mean, they're doing that for all the published D&D adventures where they have a, a bunch of different groups that they send out the materials yep. for. Like, okay, we're, we're going to play test the Dungeon of the Mad Mage. Uh, let me know what you loved and what you hated. Yep. And everybody's like, okay. And I, um, I love even like game systems where they say, try to break the system. Oh, yeah. yeah. Where, where they go like, okay, go to town and be like, is does this session work if you're trying to just run north or mm-hmm. if you're if you're trying to min max to the point that you can shoot 16 lightning bolts every turn and so it's yeah that stuff is very interesting but i don't think any real you know campaign or any real session could turn into that unless you're really testing some crazy nonsense right <laughs> It could be fun if you had a zone that's like corrupted with magic. And so every time they move through like a new area, you roll on a random table that has a bunch of rules tweaks. Oh, like this one. Just like, to test it, yeah. Like you have unlimited spell slots now. Or you have um, unlimited carry capacity. or Just something stupid oh and it just breaks the, the rules. This sounds <laughs> like an alteration I want to make to the Dungeon of the Mad Mage. Like Ooh. every level has some kind of crazy perk. <laughs> Where it's like, oh, hey, everyone has unlimited spell slots. Or, hey, everyone's health doubles every round or something. Like, or just something on this level, nobody crazy. can use skills if they're not trained. Yeah, right? yeah. It's Even like a soft play like test. Subtle, yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> it's a it's stealth. like Calvin Ball D&D. <laughs> yeah, it's Calvin Ball. Calvin it's a, it's, Ball. It's a stealth play le- it's a stealth play <laughs> test with every level. <laughs> that's that's this is crazy. I like it. Um, and then, as I mentioned before, only introduce new house rules when you start a new campaign if you can. And if not, just be clear and communicate what you're intending to change for, so your players have a heads up and you're not just dumping surprises on them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Now, we're moving to the next section, which is very controversial, I think, for uh, Jake. I fully expect you to disagree on every point, but let's... Go forward. What? Okay, Jake, here's my hot take. Okay. D&D is not a universal system. I agree with that so hard. What are you talking about? Yeah, what? Okay, so if I want to play a game of courtly intrigue, what system should I use? Oh, okay, okay, okay. Your question, I get it now. I think D&D, and especially Wizards of the Coast, they have just nailed... Their marketing. I mean, God, some of their books are ending up on the New York Times bestsellers list. Like they are killing it. So the problem is with the expansion of D and D, with Community and uh, Stranger Things, and just you know the Critical Role and the explosion of popularity of D and D. Fifth edition is becoming almost this canon, right? Like it's like you have to play Fifth Edition Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and that's something I would like to come out against, despite being personally in love with 5th edition for my personal table. <laughs> um, there are so many glorious, wonderful systems um, that deserve to be played. Um, and I see maniacs trying to adapt 5th edition into something it's not. And yes. so I, I would agree wholeheartedly 
that if you are trying to play these weirdly specific genre-focused games like a vampire intrigue game or a Game of Thrones uh, type political game or a more sci-fi focused game, there are or even like way... a suburban just like yeah, crawl any, anything it, like there are better systems, way better systems than Fifth Edition D and D. Oh, I'm I'm so surprised and very delighted that you agree with me, Jake. Yeah, if you want to play Zoo Tycoon, like you're not going to play Fifth Edition <laughs> to get your fill of Zoo Tycoon. I, I think we're going to have some listeners who disagree with me, so I'm going to get into some specifics. But first, this is a quote from a guy named Abraham Maslow. He said, I suppose it is tempting if the only tool you have is a hammer to treat everything as if it were a nail. And so D&D has very specific ways you interact with the world. It has these skills... Uh, they're mostly combat related or, or influencing something to avoid combat. Um, and so if you're playing, let's say, a Game of Thrones game, you don't really need rules for five square movements and you don't need rules for armor class, right? Like if you're mostly talking, yeah. Yeah. play something else. I would suggest a game called The Burning Wheel, which has as many social rules for social encounters as D&D does for combat. Like Good. This, is, Good. this is the game I to play. play that. I'm super scared to play Burning Wheel because that it's so I, I mentioned before, like unprogramming your, your D&D brain to learn a new system like this is the most extreme version of that. There's nothing here that is like D&D. Oh, I'm so intrigued. I want to play it so hard. <laughs> um, OK, so if let's say you want to run a modern zombie horror survival game. Very fun, very popular. This is the type of game my wife said she would play with me if I were to run it. <laughs> So I'm planning on getting a topographical map of some small rural city, and then we're going to city crawl on a real map. It's going to be great. Um, I wouldn't use 5e. I would use either Apocalypse World, which is in the uh, the Dungeon World family. It was actually the very first one. Um, or Savage Worlds, because it's extremely universal and very lightweight. Or there's a series, uh, totally unloved, <laughs> nobody knows about it, but it's called The End of the World series. Oh, I've heard, yeah, I've heard of that one, yeah. In that game, you build yourself uh, as your character in the yes, game. And then yes, yes, we we did that same thing, but we applied it to Call of Cthulhu. Yes, and yeah, 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 wildly fun <laughs> and very dark because you you have to see what you, have you to would see do. How many push-ups you can do? <laughs> like it is wow. It is incredible, guys. I would anyone listening, if you really want to get your you and your best friends to try something kind of out of the ordinary it is wild because it's like how many push-ups can you do um what is your mile time like running right. a mile as fast w- as you can what is your medical knowledge like do you even know yes. cpr like what is your blood type like all Ooh. these like random Have you ever things. shot a gun yeah yeah and it's like it's so fun and we did that we did the same thing with with us playing called cthulhu um but everyone got to rate one person on how they would do and we take the average of everyone else's rating upon them oh. and it was so fun because like <laughs> you know i'd be like wait you rated me a, a 65 swimmer i was a i was on the i was captain of the swim team in high school <laughs> what the hell and like we would just argue with each other about our stats but no that that game is I played just a, a, a version of it, and it, it seems wildly interesting. And unlike any type of, you know, tabletop role-playing game I've ever played. 
Yeah. And uh, it, it'll make you um, ask some questions of your friends that maybe they won't want to answer and vice oh, versa. No. <laughs> uh, so make sure you have the right group of people before you're like, um, no, look at you. You're fat. You couldn't run a mile. Like <laughs> zombies are going to eat you first. Like these are real conversations Ooh. that you might have in this game. So that yeah. is the end yeah. of the world. Yeah. Um, and then I mentioned Star Wars before. Don't use D&D for Star Wars. Uh, I highly recommend Fantasy Flight's Star Wars RPG books. Yes. Um, we can all then, recommend it. Holy yeah, hell. And yeah, that played was, that for years. That's my number two most played, like hours played RPG after yeah. 5e. Um, yeah. And then I've also heard the West End Games D6 Star Wars system is also pretty good. But I've heard that too. It. I haven't yep. played it either, but I've heard the two. Um, and then there, here's one that I want to try. I might actually be trying it this next year. Um, an epic sandbox space opera that's going to be kind of like um, Battlestar Galactica or maybe kind of like Star Trek. It's a game called Stars Without Number. Ooh. It is freely available and it uh, is a star sandbox. <sighs> that that sounds great. Cool. That could be great. And then uh, the final one is that if you want to play uh, Space Marines, exploring a derelict uh, ship drifting through space, encountering horrific monsters... Play Mothership. Ooh. Hmm. Google it. Google it. I'm Mothership. That yes. sounds that sounds really fun. It's by the same people who made two rooms and a boom. Oh, I am Jesus. I'm already <laughs> ordering it. <laughs> I love uh, it. Checking out on Amazon now. Yeah. Uh, all right, and so continuing my uh, my lecture here in this podcast episode, um, if you're modifying five e. Uh, I suggest that you identify the parts of the game that are serving your vision and the parts that aren't. So if you're building a high school teen romance, like some Twilight-themed thing, um, you don't need armor class, and you don't need these combat <laughs> skills, and you don't need to know how much Speak damage a large yourself, sword does. <laughs> <laughs> There's just a lot of parts where you're like, um, I don't know if, if I need this. So um, yeah. definitely it's worth looking into other games. Do some research. Other people have probably so tried to solve the same problems I you're trying to solve. I guarantee you other people have tried. Like, looking up Reddit threads or just a simple Google search, you can find, like, almost any RPG, legitimate RPG problem has been attempted to be solved. Or even yeah. solved um, yeah. on the internet. Like, just, just Google it, figure it out. Be willing to break out of 5e if you need to. Sometimes it's easier to insert D&D &D things into a different system than it is to insert other things into D&D. &D. Uh, the example I would use is like you could probably modify a Prius to go off-roading and splashing in mud and stuff. Um, <laughs> but it would be a lot of work. And ultimately, you got to ask yourself there why. Are, there are better vehicles. Yes, there's much easier ways to have that same experience and uh, that are less costly. Yeah, and and I I to be honest, I didn't think we'd become that podcast. But anyone who's playing D and D in the modern era, they just have this attraction to Fifth Edition, and it makes mm -hmm. sense. Fifth Edition is really really good, but I'm seeing this reticence to to break off from it to be like no 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 we have to modify fifth edition to, to do whatever we need to do but it's like there is a renaissance of incredible games being designed right now and all of them deserve attention and honestly all of them are like under 10 bucks yeah or free or a free lot a lot of them are free and so it's like like really explore some other types of systems and honestly if you're the dungeon master or the game master, talking to your friends to play, you know, 
a certain, you know, one shot or two shot or, you know, you know, minor campaign, it won't be that hard to teach them the rules of just a, a different system. Uh, yeah. It won't be radical at all. Um, so, so, yeah, I would really encourage people to be like, if, stop trying to modify 5e to do random stuff that it was not designed to do and just find some really cool systems that do what you want in the genre you want in the best way. <laughs> so um, I may have told David about this uh, already, but um, so, I mean, anybody who's listened to our show knows that I am sort of the advocate for the OSR and the old style D&D. Um, and the way I would explain the difference between 5e and, let's say, advanced Dungeons and Dragons is that modifying 5e is kind of like taking apart a car engine. Like I said, um, there's a lot of moving parts and it's complicated, but it's kind of elegant. Modifying advanced D&D is like modifying a bicycle. Like it is so much simpler. And so there's other, um, whether you're playing AD&D or not, um, there's other systems that are just so plain to understand it's so simple that you can easily modify them and do exactly what you want yeah um so yeah i highly recommend just shopping around a little bit mm-hmm. yeah with all of this stuff being said i want to kind of go around the table so to say and discuss the house rules that we use in our current games or or house rules that we plan on using in upcoming games so let's start with jake what are some house rules <sighs> all right so so i think the most the the house rule that separates me from most of fifth edition games is I do not allow resurrection in my world. I feel like when a player dies, they die. And so a lot of people will accuse me of being like, you're too, you know, you care too much about your players or you, you know, will fudge the stats in defense of your players whatever and i think i I would be like yeah i would agree to that like anyone who accuses me of that i go i agree because death in my world is permanent it's like our real reality when you die you die and so i think that is probably of all of the house rules i have that is the most drastic one um, I do not allow any form of resurrection spells or magic. Um, first off, because if resurrection existed, that would add an incredibly strange wrinkle into the entire world, which we will definitely talk about in a later episode about the logical effects of magic on the world. Um but yeah, I, I feel like resurrection being absent from my world has made death very meaningful and very important and people being more afraid of it because they cannot be resurrected. That When they die, they die. So, so what do you guys think of that? Well, you, you kind of addressed the argument that I would make where you fudge dice and you do all these things kind of to make sure that players have close calls, but no real death. So it seems like in order to kill a player, it's probably going to be at a big story moment. Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So this, the goal of this um, is really just to lend itself to more dramatic character death. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's it. Because (laughs) 
I don't want death to be, oh, that random zombie just, oh, he critted you and you died. Oh, go but buy also, a diamond you, and resurrect But you also him. don't want it to be like, oh, my guy like did the ultimate sacrifice and like got swallowed by the dragon, killed it from the inside, but then fell into the volcano. But we're just going to bring him back to life. Yeah. Yeah. Both, Ooh. both sides are just, it's just, it is the, it is, it's anticlimactic. It's, mm-hmm. you take away the, the wonderful drama of the scenario by, yeah, getting a diamond and being like, okay, he's back. Yeah. Back again. I'm not a, I'm back not a again. fan of that. So, so that is, and back. that has changed my world. It has changed the way I ran the Tomb of Annihilation. Because um, in the rules as written, Tomb of Annihilation was anyone who had been resurrected was essentially being dragged back into hell or whatever. They were being killed because of that. And I changed that to anyone who had been healed before was being affected by it because I don't like the the resurrection rule. And it's so much better better when everyone who has been you know obviously affected by magical healing since day one if they live in any semblance of civilization um is way better than people who you know magic heroes who have been resurrected mm-hmm. um it, it changes the way you look at the world yeah it does for my first house rule that i use the most is my custom initiative that i didn't make up I got this from some blog. I read so many of them. I don't know where it's from. Um, But all you do um, is instead of having everybody roll individual initiative, I roll my number and that's for the monsters. And then I ask who rolled higher than this number and who rolled lower. And if you are higher, then you can go in any order within that little division. And then there's me. And then if you're lower, you go in any order you want. And it's very fast, very simple. I don't have to write down all these names all the time. Um, and this is solving my own personal beef with how slow combat is and how it kind of bogs down. Yeah. And it's just to get the ball rolling. Um, I find that a lot of the times my players look bored while they're waiting for their turn because they always know exactly when they can go. But when they can go in any order they want, they can sit and kind of plan a little bit more. Or they, they're like, oh, I have this ability that is a bonus if I go first in initiative, so I should go first. Um, I think, I think uh, I've played the entire Tomb of Annihilation with it. I think that this is... I think a pretty positive rule. I guess I should ask David what he thinks about this because he's played with it this whole time. Uh, this is uh, my favorite house rule that I've played with because it, <laughs> hey! it's. I I think it's it just speeds things up. Uh, I I like that it's just higher or lower. So it's like you go before the monsters or you go after them. It's it makes it so much easier for combat running the game because you're not having to worry about well the zombie number three acts after player this player and but the other zombies act before this player and it's just it's just it's less to track it makes it simpler initiative doesn't really matter except for the people who are except for players generally yeah as a gm you're you don't really care that much oh and then ties go to the monster yes my other it's actually so I'm going to be running a game tomorrow, and I'm probably going to be using that as well. Oh, I didn't so, know. That. Yeah, yeah. I I think this just because this house rule is great. We've used it so much. I'm like, I don't. I just I dread going back to the rules as written. <laughs> yeah. And I I just I think it's it's so simple, and it's an it makes the game faster. <laughs> wow. I mean, I, I think that's the wonderful thing about house rules is that if they work so well, when you go back to rules as written, you're like, wait, what? No. 
It feels unnatural. That's yeah, it like, feels ugh. unnatural. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, no, I played, I, I have recently played in the game with Will um, in Tomb of Annihilation, and it went great, like, doing the, uh, you know, like, okay, this is what the monsters rolled. You either go before or after, and you could pick in any order how you attack. My main question to you would be, if there's, like, six monsters do you always just roll the same initiative for them? Or if, if they were different monster groups, um, I would just roll them into different things. Or, like they would have their own split. So it would look a lot more like regular initiative, but you'd still be able to flex in between them, right? Like okay. if you had two two players in between the, the monsters, then they could go in any order. That's really good. I, I really, this is one of those things I, I'm thinking about adding into my game because Ooh. that, that it really, it makes, it makes sense and it as long as you have like players that are kind of uh quick uh, that that are willing to like kind of gunsling and make decisions on the fly i think it's way better you know if you have players that are kind of like tactically analysis paralysis mm-hmm. based it could slow things down because like <laughs> do you want to go first no i want to go for no okay do you want to go first okay <laughs> you know but as long as you're like, okay, you would be better going first, just do it. That's, I, I really like this house rule. I guess we should say that your mileage may vary on any of these rules. Oh, yeah. I, I think that's, a, that's the literal definition of house rules is your mileage may vary. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It just depends on the table. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's do David's most Ooh. used house rule. So I don't know if this is a house rule, but uh, I like to I like the idea of making custom magic items and spells for creatures and monsters, and it adds more like flair and liveliness to my games. Some of my favorite things about Fifth Edition are the unique items that they provide, like the immovable rod or Bigby's hand or Tensor's floating discs. All of these spells are very unique and very situational and interesting, and I like to be able to create my own items that do different things like that. So uh, I I think that 5e provides a great baseline for what a magic item can do and the limitations of it. And I think that just to be able to include my own kind of is almost its own house rule in a lot of games yeah yeah so i have some interesting spells and items lined up soon i'm excited to find out more because i am playing in a a DD campaign for a change oh yeah boy Ooh, baby (laughs) all right uh jake you want to comment or you want to do yours um yeah so so uh, another one for me is I love the Dungeons and Dragons races. Um, I guess to use the more modern term, the ancestry. And so I love the mixing of that. And I know D&D 5e doesn't have the mathematics of like, okay, what if I'm a half halfling, half human? It's like there's no quarterling stats. But I really love this and I, I encourage my players to do this is there essentially if you're not a tortle or a tiefling or an aracocra or you know anything else if you're a dwarf elf human halfling gnome all of those things can interbreed with each other 
and and we can kind of makeshift the the stats to make sense with uh, whatever you choose. And so I really like the idea of someone being, you know, a half halfling, half gnome, or someone that is a, you know, half elf, half orc. See, that's that's weird to me mm-hmm. because what does a total human look like? No, I just said that. So so Aarakocra, Tabaxi, Tortles, anything that's kind of like animalistic, in the, they cannot mix. Tieflings, like they oh, cannot okay. mix. Other than that, I think that mixing is all out of bounds. And so, you know, uh, human, dwarf, elf, uh, gnome, uh, halfling, all those, they can mix in in all sorts of, of different ways. And we could just do the math as the dungeon master and the player um, to figure out what's the best stats to, to make with whatever they want to do. See, this is one of your house rules that I actually don't like very much because I like the Tolkien-esque fantasy of the elves are essentially aliens. Like they're so different than human beings that they're a completely different thing. And that dwarves are almost like these clockwork beings created by this certain god. Like they're totally different. And I like that separation because it keeps the flavor distinct. I would worry that um, if everybody's like a quarter something or my ancestors this or that um if you fast forward time like everybody is eventually this very homogenous group of just like one type of people one you know ancestry and now we've arrived because i have played so long in this game that in the beginning if you're an elf or a dwarf or a human everyone hated each other like everyone was just like uh, you know, they'd make jabs about humans and elves and, and dwarves. And, like, the whole thing was kind of this, this very inherently racist, like, you know, like, like there was a generalized view of society for each race. But but now, that in, like, the, the game world, like, 500 years. And so because of that, there is this, like new interesting mixing of the races and yeah so so your original points of like okay these kind of tolkien-esque like okay they view this as this and they view this as this all that makes sense but like if those people continue to live in the same world for 500 years their views would change a little bit and there'd be some more interbreeding and that's what i love about my world is is there's been a lot of progression about it and i've got to, i've got to see the mix of these strange races so that, that's one house rule that i have that we can kind of homebrew any mixture of races hmm. i don't think i'd ever use it but it's interesting <laughs> we'll consider it uh, <laughs> i too have a controversial house rule that i i think i might retire for the next one um before i explain it i'm gonna sort of give you my why I did this in the first place. And that was, um, I realized that there's certain parts of the game that I dislike or or parts of the game that are more challenging for me to keep track of. And combat math is one of those. And so I delegated a lot of responsibility to um, whoever is the fastest at doing math. So I have a dedicated person who tracks the damage on all targets in a combat, which is very nice. Um, And then this is the, the rule now. Whenever a player successfully hits a target, I tell them the AC. 
And I, like I'm saying, I don't know if I'm going to keep this because it keeps it exposed. Um, but the goal of this was just to make combat faster. And I hate answering the same question 20 times. Like, oh, what was it? Does, it? does a 16 hit? I'm like, yes. Right? Like, I'm just minimizing communication. The downside of this is that it makes combat more mechanical. And it gives players information that they might not necessarily have unless they're paying more attention. Because obviously after a round of combat, they're going to know generally, like, some info about the ac so this is mine it's um i would give it like a c plus as far as like where i regard it but i'm using it right now and i and i can't just turn it off because we've gone through the whole campaign doing this and so i can't just say oh sorry no more information for ac uh so as as someone who has played in your campaign for one time (laughs) i have witnessed a snake in the grass, and his name is David. <laughs> and I have seen the way he games the system, and his ti- his entire class and subclass is based on that rule. Yes. And so yes. if you change that rule, David's subclass would be garbage. I don't think it would be garbage. It would just mean it would take a little longer before he had achieved full steam. Sure. But, like... He gets full steam the second combat begins. And yeah. it's like, it's insane because he can just be like, what's the AC? Okay, I can do the math and calculate for sharpshooter minus 10 to do double damage, whatever. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so it's like, <laughs> and and I look at David, I remember looking at David during this playing with you. And I'm like, oh, look at him. Look at that little rascal. That's that's all he's doing. He's just calculating the the AC versus his math. And mm-hmm. it's like ah! <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. And so that's what I don't know. If you're playing with a group that's like kind of like, okay, yeah, we can do this. I totally agree with that. It makes it easier for you, it makes it easier for them. But if you're playing with a David, <laughs> they're gonna game the system every time. Yeah. I think if I was to change it, I would delegate somebody to track the uh what the numbers that they had hit for AC, so they would kind of have to determine it themselves. And then if they're not paying attention, then they just don't get that info. This so they're still getting that same thing, but um I don't know, it's just so helpful because it really does speed up combat when they're like, okay, AC is 16, let's go. Yeah, I'm going to go on the opposite end. I think that <laughs> announcing the AC makes sense because it it just speeds up combat. There's it's there, there It just seems to annoying to be like to to just like constantly be trying to figure out like, "Oh, does this mm-hmm. hit?" Like that slows down combat so much. And combat is already kind of slow. Yeah. So, I'm a fan of speeding up combat. Are you using this in your game? Uh, I haven't decided yet. Mm-hmm. I haven't decided yet. All right, so the the next house rule that I am planning on implementing is the injury system. So I, I feel like already. So I feel like combat is it's too easy to just walk away from it, and it you have ten HP left, but it doesn't feel. It still feels like you're at full health. And I think that injuries are something that has been missing from 5e and there isn't a clear way to give a player an injury and to say like your arm is cut off without feeling, 
without the players going up in arms about or it. down in arms in this case. <laughs> or down in arms. So yeah, it's one just of like the take a nap. Yes. So I'm going to have uh, anytime a player gets critically hit, they have an injury. And injuries aren't something that is healed through gaining hit points. It is healed through medicine checks and some sort of magic. So if your arm gets cut off, you can't just like cast cure wounds and your arm grows back or it gets reattached. You're going to have to make some sort of medicine check and have uh, healing along with that in order to cure it. And Mm. if your arm gets cut off, it might not be able to be reattached Mm. if you don't roll high on the... I'm curious to see how I this like goes that. in play, but I like the idea of it. Yeah. So that's that's one of the new house rules I want to add because I always think it's it's interesting whenever um, you have long term, you know, mm-hmm. things. And, you know, you can always give the player a robotic arm later on in order to, you know, help fix them or they they get some sort of weird like owl eye from their patron Ooh. or you know something along those lines if their eye gets poked out like they're <laughs> like you can have but i just i like seeing characters like evolve and change over time and one of them one of the ways of doing that is by changing their physicality another one for me is the what i call the beer standard is that i do not use copper or platinum or silver or I don't use any of the crazy little metals. Everything is gold. And so I've talked about this in a, an earlier episode, but I, I revolve on the beer standard <laughs> and that all, every time you ask for a beer, a tankard of ale, it's one gold, no matter what. So you can kind of judge all magic items, all everything, like the price of a room all that on the price of a tankard of ale at your local inn. And so I really like that because the whole thing of like, hey, you you looted this monster and you got 48 gold and 26 silver and 48 bronze and 1.3 platinum. And it's like, okay. It, it's so confusing that I like to just focus it into gold and like you know gold is just way more specific um so what i call the beer standard is something that um i i like to implement into my games i think we've talked about it before i so you are mixing races jake and i am removing them from my game so uh i recently i had a very long and in-depth and somewhat frustrating conversation with my players last week um because for our next campaign i'm allowing players handbook races only because everybody else wants to play as whatever such and such purple unicorn rainbow and i'm thinking like my party is going to look like a bag of skittles i like that very dark fantasy feel where like if you're an elf that's freaking exotic let alone like, oh, I'm a Kenku who's also a bard, and that's common enough that I'm not that people don't run screaming from me whenever I appear in the street. So um, my my house rule is player's handbook races only. You know what? It's it, this rule baffles me because 
when we first started playing D&D, I would only ever play as human. And Will would get mad because everyone in the party was just a bunch of humans. And he's like, you guys need to mix it up. And now when I want to play like a Kenku or something, he's like, no, you can't do that anymore. You all need to be humans again. I've, I never said you had to be humans. I no, mean, but... You can't be a centaur or an elephant man <laughs> or a uh, freaking Yuan-T who are known for hating human society. Like, why is this party a thing? Sorry, guys. And then briefly, I'll touch on the rest of these. Um, I've talked uh, at some length about my survival elements, mostly involving weight, and I maybe tracked water. I forget. Um, you can read more about that on our blog, which is voxercanon.org for the blog. Um, I also entertained the idea of the trained skills only house rule, which uh, thudded very hard and no one wants to use, so we're not going to do that. Uh, and then one idea that I had was for training time is required for leveling up so that you... Uh, you have your XP or whatever you're using, but you can't actually level up until you go rest, kind of like in Skyrim. Um, and I wrote out my rules for that, and then I went and I Googled it, and I found much more in-depth rules. And reading those, I realized that I didn't actually want to use this rule. So, uh, yeah, RIP training time. All right, so for me, some of the uh, systems that I, or the house rules that I have been considering adding, one of them is a... In more in-depth stamina and exhaustion system to go along with injuries. Uh, I'm definitely going to unlink them and not going to be doing anything with stamina in my game for now because I still have to think about it. But I feel like as you get more exhausted, there should be more punishing to fight several fights during the day. You shouldn't be able to, in my opinion, have five different combat encounters and still be fine and a hundred percent in each one of them you should have some sort of penalty mm. to for each each excess combat encounter yeah. Uh, yeah. but that's not something that i'm gonna do right now uh, i also like uh, systems that track time and carry capacity because i think it forces players to make decisions that um with what they have being more meaningful in their inventory and how they spend their time being more meaningful, especially in scenarios where there is a time crunch. So those are for specific games, but they can be um, very important. And then the last and final combat or the last and final house rule that I have been debating adding, it is communication during combat. And that is, Players cannot talk to each other about their actions in combat when combat is happening. Oh, oh I disagree. So, if we're talking about realism and making combat uh, interesting and forcing players to make suboptimal decisions, being able to can perfectly coordinate as if you had, you know, a hive mind, isn't makes players make. Uh, better decisions and to limit them and not to not being able to talk to each other or only be able to communicate you know six words or less in mm. a combat round can make things interesting hmm. so i'm not sure i like that i understand the intention but i'm going to show you um how they did initiative in advanced D, &D where it you have to declare actions uh and it's very different and it does the same thing but it's it still allows communication all right, well, that was some good insight into what we want out of our 5e experience. Very interesting, because I've learned a lot about both of you um, and myself. But now let's design a house rule together. So first, we need to identify a part of the game 
that we're unhappy with or that we feel could be oh, better. Oh, okay. Can I can I come forward? Oh, oh, yeah. So, okay, my players are about to enter the dungeon of the Mad Mage. And one of my complaints is that um, after listening to our OSR episode, um, that in, in the original game, people were not punished, but when you were badly damaged, you had to kind of sit around and, and let that damage heal, mm-hmm. right? Like, like if you were hit down to one health point, you couldn't just take a nap and come back into action, which is... It was like weeks e of resting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so my whole thing is I want to try to balance out long rests into the Dungeon of the Mad Mage to the point where they're not just auto get your hit points back if you sleep for eight hours. Hmm. So so is there a way that we can kind of house rule that to make long rests uh, not better, but but ugh, sadly worse? Um, to make them more fair and to more realistic, to to make them more accurate and realistic. All right. So the first idea I have is after a long rest, you cover you recover half of your missing HP. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if you're at full health, you're going to be or close to full health. You're you're going to be recovering a small amount. Whereas if you're at like one HP, you recover half, but you know, you still have a big chunk of your hit points that are missing. So let me back up a little bit, Jake. So you're, this rule is coming into being because you think that long rests are too good and you want them to be more... Uh, what? Less restful. Less restful. So it's more dangerous yeah. to sleep? No, I, I want them to just be less perfect, right? Because <laughs> think uh, okay. of it. If you're fighting a red dragon and, you know, one of your friends is burned with third third degree burns and another friend gets like half their ribs broken and another friend you know gets their arm cut off it doesn't make sense for all of them to sleep eight hours and then feel fantastic when they wake up right like i I want to feel ramifications and like almost fear of sleeping in the dungeon of the bad mage so your objections to long rest are less about resource management and more about just realism. Perhaps. Yeah, yes, yes. Okay, because um, I have two possible solutions for this. Uh, the first is if you're tracking time in a dungeon, um, chances are there's not going to be any safe places to pull over and sleep for eight hours anyway without some serious guarding. And so I would suggest uh, consider random encounters every hour. Like there's a one in six chance every hour. Um, because that means that it's very unlikely they will ever even get to do a long rest, which is terrifying, unless they leave the dungeon. So this uh, way, you're, you don't have to make a new system. All you got to do is track hours. Uh, so that's one idea. If you're looking at more mechanical modification of the rest system, I would just make... Um, I think I've seen this online. They differentiate long rests in civilization versus long rests in the wilderness. And it, it just really limits the amount of hit dice you get back. Yeah. So uh, normally you get it restores all conditions. Uh, it gives all hit dice back. Um, but now you, I think the one that I saw said that you treat a long rest in the wilderness kind of like a short rest, um, that also heals a base amount. So like David's saying, it would heal half your health. Well, maybe you would get like two free hit dice rolled for free, and then um, you have some amount of hit dice in the pool. Another thing that you can do is. As so, I so if I were to make this my house roll, I would do the 
uh, health recovered from a short rest is halved. Then I would also do you get only half of the amount of spell slots oh. and uh, back from your short from your long rest. Oh. So that limits the amount of resources that they're getting. So every day they're waking up and they're only getting half of the amount that they would normally get. So, and then so finally, I would have random encounters where every night that there is a chance of a, an encounter happening that they have to deal with before they rest or to push them into exhaustion. Mm-hmm. And I would mm-hmm. I would use exhaustion as a more threatening idea where they're they're being constantly forced to rest mm-hmm. because going through a dungeon every single day where you're living in it is going to be exhausting. I I like that. I think exhaustion is not used as much as it should be. But also my main fear is that if I do anything to alter long rest, it'll just change to make all of my players do two long rests in a row. <laughs> Like, right, like they'll just do, you know, if, if I go, okay, you only get half the benefits, they'll be like, okay, we'll just set up camp and do do it twice. No, no, that, no. That I wouldn't slow okay. down the game. So then here's what you do is you say, in order to gain the benefits from a long rest, you have to rest for eight hours. Any extra rest on top of that does not add any sort of benefit. And in order to gain that benefit, you need to, like, leave the dungeon or, like, rest for, like, a week or something. So here's the rules that I used in um, my overworld hex crawl part of Tomb of Annihilation. Because uh, I did change healing because I thought that healing is way too effective. Um, so here's the general rule. A character can benefit from a maximum of three rests in a 24-hour period. Either one long rest and two short rests, or three short rests if for some reason there's no time for a long sleep at the end of the day. And the rest must be spaced at least four hours apart. So that could hmm. solve your uh, your back-to-back uh, 16-hour sleep. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. That's good. And I, I really think the bottom line is playtesting this and being like, does this work? Does this not? You know, it's tough messing with the rules as written, especially when they're entering the dungeon of the Mad Mage, right? <laughs> yeah. And maybe the floors change how rests work, right? Like we said, maybe you could change up a rule for every floor, and this would be your chance to do it and actually have in-game reasons for crazy things happening. Uh, yeah, yeah. Let's step into review corner. This week's review is from Alabaster Blue. Thanks, Alabaster Blue. This podcast, Save My D&D Group, is the title. Whoa. I helped organize a D&D group with a buddy who had DM'd several times. I had never played before. At the last minute, my buddy dropped out, leaving us without a DM. Not wanting to disband the group, I had stepped up and agreed to DM, but I had no idea what I was doing. With the help of William, Luke, and David at Vox Arcana, I got, a, <laughs> I got a crash course in D&D and how to be a thoughtful DM. I learned the basics and so many tricks and tips and strategies thanks to this podcast. Our group has been going for over a year now, and we're having a blast. Whoa. Thanks, guys. Yes. Thank you, Alabaster Blue. That's so cool that uh, he was able great. to save the group. If you leave a five-star review for us on iTunes, 
your review might show up in our review corner. Thank you for listening to Vox Arcana episode 35. I'm William. I'm Jake. And I'm David. We'll see you next time. You can follow us on social media. For Twitter memes and deep thoughts, follow us at Vox Arcana Pod. For Facebook articles and gaming news, follow us at Vox Arcana Podcast. And our Instagram is where we post all of our amazing fantasy art and some behind-the-scenes material. That's at Vox Arcana Podcast. You can email your questions and feedback, especially for the question vault, to voxarcanapodcast at gmail.com. Sometimes you just have to make it up. I'll allow it.